we'll be streaming live soon. Good morning, everybody. I am glad to welcome you this morning to Bible Study Time here with Rick Bonfin Ministries. I'm delighted to be asked to make some remarks and gather our thinking around a Bible study again about the wonderful book of James. And uh, I've been given the opportunity to talk from the second chapter of James and going to read a little into that, probably down to maybe verse 13. And we will begin this morning by starting with a reading of that scripture. So I just invite you to take your Bible out and look and see if you can find James and then the second chapter of it. And we're going to start reading at the first verse there, which is a, I'm using a, a, a sort of a version of the Bible, kind of a sort of a, uh, called Holloman Bible. It's, uh, they put it out several years ago, but it is, uh, it's interesting. It's called the Apologetic, Apologetic Study Bible. It's an excellent Bible to study the Bible from the standpoint of asking questions about it. So let, let me get with it. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ without showing favoritism. For I suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes, so that you say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over there, or sit on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brother, didn't God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he's promised to those who love him? Yet, you dishonored that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you, drag you into courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that you bear? If you really carry out the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are Convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speaking act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
And, and there is the lesson for consideration for today. Going to gather some thoughts around the intention, I think, of this text is to talk about favoritism a little bit, what favoritism might mean. Uh, also remind you that this text about being merciful and about not showing favoritism appears in the words of Jesus many, many times, particularly on the Sermon on the Mount in the fifth chapter of, of Matthew, seventh verse, he says, blessed are the merciful. And God is interested in that. Mercy. Mercy. I have a African-American minister friend who has just coined that word into his entire life. He, he says it all the time. Mercy. <laughs> so much so that his clergy brethren refer to him as mercy. Every time we see him, we say mercy. And he says mercy. See, mercy is what we are about. That's what the business of the, of pastoring is, is bringing Jesus mercy. So, mercy, I say this morning, mercy. Maybe that's a habit you can pick up. This is time to try. Mercy. <laughs> well, to talk about how, how it is that God doesn't show favorites, the Old Testament is also loaded with that, yeah? If you go back in the Old Testament, particularly in in First uh, Samuel chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, you know, when Samuel was trying to pick the next king of Israel from the children there in, in that passage of Elab, he, he says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the, his appearance or his statue because I have rejected him. <laughs> oh, Lord, mercy. Man does not see what the Lord sees. For man sees what is visible. But the Lord looks on the heart. Mm, mercy. That's what, that's where the Lord looks on it. Now, favoritism, y'all, is what's talked about here. And it's an interesting word, favoritism, to think about it. If you, the Old Testament, again, is loaded with it too because it's obvious, not so obvious to me, but it, it is relevant to consider that the Lord himself shows favoritism all the time, all the time. He chose the Hebrew people as his favorites. I mean, if you look back on Cain and Abel, he definitely had a liking for Abel. And Jesus picks up on it in the story of the prodigal son, the old brother there, the older brother. He, he senses that the father is favorite is the prodigal son and not him. And, of course, we get the impassioned speech of the father to the older son saying, oh, son, I, you, you're always with me. I'm trying to, trying to kind of smooth it over. But the fact is that he's standing on that porch every day waiting for that bad boy to, to come home. His favorite is obvious there. And uh, I, I worked this stuff out in my life. When, when I went into ministry, I left one brother behind, the only family I really had. I let, he was older than me, and I left him behind and 
left the business and went into the ministry. And uh, I think he he sensed that I, I was a favorite of some sort. And uh, we, we, we wrestled with that and struggled with that through the years and still do in some ways. But this favoritism that James was referring to is, is a Greek word. I can't pronounce the thing. Prosopoepsia is probably, that's pretty close. Uh, it is a sense of you lifting your face up. Uh, face up, it says, uh, it means that you got, you're, you're, you're the favored one. You, you, you can lift up your head because you are God's favorite one. Hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ without showing favoritism. And this is James thing here. Now he's working on these, these people that he's trying to, uh, lead and teach. And this is one of the first things that tumbles out of him as being something really, 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 really bad, really, really evil, really, really terrible. So, it makes you think, you know, how do I show favoritism in my life? What do I do with wrong that does that? Well, preachers notoriously can uh, detect the odor in the air of money. <laughs> if somebody comes into our congregation and on a Sunday morning and they uh, have Gucci handbags and dressed up in $1,000 shoes and mint coats and and they have, uh, you know, a, a be, be, beautiful clothing, tailor suits and all that. Well, we, we, we're not blind. We have sensations to that. And we sense, oh, my goodness, there may be a tither there that could just support the financial woes of this church. At the same time, somebody might come in with a, with what the text here says, a vile attire, uh, which means it smells bad. Somebody might come in and just simply is poor, uh, beaten down off the street, smelling bad. You know, you know you, your tendency is to say, well, maybe there's a place back there in the back on the right where you can sit this morning. Say, sit over there. So, <laughs> so you won't have to smell you this morning. <laughs> but I know this sounds funny, but it's absolutely true. Um, and this is what James is against and making sure that this young Christian community gets it straight as to who they stand for. See, we have a tendency, we ministers and we people of the Lord have a tendency to over-identify with the congregation that we serve for any reason. If anybody is a favorite of anything, we ought not to care about it. Because if we don't, we're going to over-identify with a certain population. And they're going to exercise their influence over you and over us. And as you listen to me talk, think of those people that, that you over-identify with. And, and, and work on that a little bit. And it works itself out in, in, in politics too, you know, we always fighting these days over one political persuasion or another. Some kind of identity then becomes a politic. That's a, that, that's a, uh, not a very good healthy way to run a country. 
especially the church, but to have identity politics working. You don't you don't judge people based on what kind of clothes they got on. Now you may think this is very elementary, and maybe even you may think it's infantile to discuss this, but we do. We do judge a person sometimes on the kind of automobile that they drive. I'll never forget I left my first church on my first Sunday morning as I drove up to to the church, left the parsonage, drove to the church. When I got to the church, there was a big fella standing on the steps waiting for me to get there. And when I drove up, he he turned to the one next to him and said, he ain't going to be no good because he's driving a foreign car. <laughs> I had an old Volvo and she was ready to fall apart. But to him, that was something that he took and lumped me into based on the kind of automobile I drive. Well, see, that's, that's, uh, that's bad. Not only is it bad, it's uh, unreasonable and it's downright ignorant. If you judge people based on, say, the color of their skin, you judge people in any way, you're bucking up against James here real good and hard, and he won't have none of that. You don't take people in groups. We don't, we don't, that's a particular Christian thing too, by the way. This is, this doesn't seem real logical, but we don't judge people. Period. Why? So we won't be judging ourselves. Jesus said, what is in the Old Testament? You love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and your neighbor as yourself. No matter what kind of coat the neighbor's got on, you, you don't, you don't. And if you judge people based on a group, you know, if you say, well, all those red-headed people over there, they got hot tempers. Mm-hmm. I've known it. I've known it all my life. A red-headed person. Now, see, that, that's just as ignorant as it can possibly be coming out of somebody's mouth because they're judging people Based on the group, you take people one at a time. Follow me now? You take them one at a time. If they happen to be coming through the church door, you just take them one at a time. You don't take the whole group and put them on one side and another group on the other. You, all of them come through that door one at a time. So if you are going to be the judge of the earth, I don't recommend it, but you better take people one at a time instead of putting them into groups and thinking about them that way, because that's not good. And by the way, this business of coming into the into the congregation here, James, there's a Greek in the back of that too. He per- perceives of these rich people in fine attire as coming into the congregation in a uh, sort of a pompous way, you know, like, oh, here we are, we're coming in, you know, and here, how important and beautiful we are, you see, and they don't want to sit in the back, they want to sit down front, so they can go past everybody, and everybody can see them, and they have rings on their fingers, you know, I read some preacher say that uh, 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 you could rent rings in Jerusalem, archaeology has discovered 
that it was possible to rent them. And they put them on every finger. And every finger had a ring on it. And it, it indicated that they were wealthy, even though they weren't. They just rented the things and turned them back in. But they wanted to look pretty that way. They wanted to make them look pretty. But this also took its uh, turn in uh, rural Anglican churches around. I grew up in Tidewater, Virginia, around some churches, you know, started out in 1640, way back down there. And uh, the, the men would not go into the church until preaching started because they felt like if anything was going to be said, they wanted to hear it. And the rest of the time, they'd hang around outdoors. They didn't get involved in worship. They didn't get in all of that. But when it was time for the preacher to preach, they'd come stomping in. Come, they call, call it come stomping in. They'd stomp the snow off their feet. They'd come inside, put the back away, and get on in there and sit down somewhere or another. But they would pompously enter, you see, like a bunch of men in control of things would come in there when they're stamping in there, stamp, stamp, stamp. Well, that'd be what he's talking about. This kind of individual that not only is rich and pretty, but knows it and wants to share it with you. And what he doesn't want his people to do is to over-identify with that kind of nonsense. Because they'll do it. They'll do it real quick. Real quick. Well, this passage is about showing partiality and how it is that we ought not to do that. In the very first verse, he's showing partiality. James asks a question. This is kind of rare in scriptures. This is a a dramatic uh, Greek thing here. He asks a rhetorical question. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? That's a rhetorical question. Do you believe? I mean, how can you do that and at the same time say that you believe? Because it's one thing, see, to say you believe in Jesus. But it's another thing for you or me to appropriate what we believe. Now, this is James' bag, man. He wants you to get to work. Stop riding around talking about your faith, but get to working. And he's going, in the second half of uh, this uh, second chapter, second half of it, you're going to be talking about faith and works and how faith works. But uh, right here, he's beginning to, to uh, try to kick a field goal by telling you that uh, you you can't believe in Jesus if you show favoritism. It just shows that you don't believe in Jesus, that you haven't appropriated Jesus. Because when you appropriate Jesus, Jesus don't have no favorites. Isn't that good? That's, that's, that's wonderful. In verse 2 through 4, he talks about this partiality inside of a Christian fellowship. Discriminate against somebody, discriminate against them on account of wealth. To do this is to become judges of evil thoughts. To judge in an evil way. Judge, by the way, is critic. In the Greek, it means to be a critic. A crit- criticism by showing favoritism toward the wealthy. We imply that they are more desirable than the poor person 
when in fact in God's eyes, both rich and poor are precious. The New Testament shows you that over and over. He'll love a poor man one minute, take up with a rich man the next. He, he, he just, that just don't bug him. That's the way he is. If you show favoritism to the wealthy, you imply that they are more desirable than poor people. It breaks the laws of God. He made, James made that observation about the life in chapter verse 5 through 7. He, he makes an observation about it. Those that don't have any status and wealth seem to be the very ones who respond readily in faith toward the Christian gospel. This is a peculiar phenomenon, but not unreasonable. Poor people, particularly people who are not, not educated real well, just fall in love with the Lord at the slightest, slightest gift of word. They're just ready, 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 because life is tough on them, hard on them. Now, this is not to oversay that we can say that just because you're poor means you're susceptible to the gospel more so than if you're rich. But both of those, extremely wealthy people and extremely poor people on both ends, of that spectrum state are likely to be tender, are likely to be ready. Uh, John Wesley, the uh, 18th century uh, preacher who started Methodism, uh, ran up against a man who was the most rich and fashionable in all of England. And his name was Bo. Uh, they called him, they called him, let me see if I can get find him here. Bo Nash, that's right, Nash. Bo Nash, he was a man who, who just was the most fashionable man in all of England, living in Bath, the city of Bath, with all its fountains and glory. And he heard that John Wesley was coming to Bath. And he says, I will meet him on the road and turn him away. And he met Wesley and just got in his face, you know, we don't want you here. We don't want your poor mess around here. This is the most wealthy city in all of England. We don't have time for street preachers. Take your mess and get on down the road, see? That's the way, well, I doctored that up a whole lot. I don't know exactly what he said. I don't think anybody knows, but the encounter occurred. Wesley has it in his journal. And when it occurred, he said, uh, uh, Wesley said to Nash, he said, Nash, you What's my name? And he said, well, Wesley's your name. And John Wesley said, well, Mr. Nash, I don't judge you based on your name. And furthermore, the thing about the clothes he had on either. I don't judge you based on that. He said, but you have judged me based on my name of Wesley. He said, you've committed sin, not me. And Wesley went right on into town and, and, and preached. And he wasn't popular there. I mean, the people uh, spit at him, spit at him, and uh, uh, t- t- hissed at him you know, like a snake. You know, like that. hissed at him, and he just did his stuff, and he eventually left. But he was that that full blown religious persuasion is very often not looked upon as wonderful by rich people in the middle, or even people off off middle class. It, it kind of it kind of turned from it. 
But you get in the extremes, very rich, very poor, they're ready sometimes to turn and, and commit themselves to the gospel. To show favoritism is to break the divine rule of the kingdom of God. For God's perfect law is encapsulated in the law of love. In verse 10, James reinforces the point by noting that his comments may seem like making a mountain out of a molehill, but we break the law if we break it in but one respect. For example, of showing partiality, we've broken God's law as a whole and are liable to God's condemnation. Disobedience at one point only makes us a lawbreaker. This is James now. This is, this is James's theology. It's not necessarily Paul's, but it is James. Disobedience at one point only makes us a lawbreaker. Finally, James encourages his preachers and speakers to motivate their love by mercy. Have mercy. See? And God's perfect liberating law is given unto mercy and should motivate us to turn around and show mercy. Oh boy, that's hard to get uh, people to do, show mercy. Only way you can get them to do it is if you get them, them to, to see their own guilt, to see how guilty they are. And then God in his love and power will, will restore them into his mercy. We see this today in, in, in religion that's, that's like a business, like a market business. Sometimes denominational churches, by the nature of, uh, it, it attempted to promote a worldly image, success and youthfulness, you know, vigor, all that kind of stuff, uh, up, up, jumping services. Sometimes that stuff is electronic ooze. It just don't, it just doesn't do well in reality. Because people are sick and want, want, a, want a living Lord, not a sugar-coated Jesus. Uh, but what are the motives, motives behind some of our advertising style? What's behind some of the programs that shapes us as we think about what we do in our congregational services? And that's, of course, what James is talking about how to have and conduct with integrity a congregational service. It's a beautiful thing, but, but our country does suffer from a middle-class Christianity, boy, I'm telling you, it's, and it suffers from it too because they've got preachers that over-identify with their people. It ain't worth five cents. Either one of them, if you do that. As we saw in this study, the gospel is attractive to more people who can't achieve anything than those who overachieve everything. The poor people who underachieve don't, don't have enough to eat on the far extremes respond to the gospel. Beautiful people, as they say, often don't. And we shouldn't kind of cater to them and coax them. The problem is, in many ways, that Christianity as we have it has really influenced our society. 
just as bad as the society influencing them. It's exceedingly easy to market the church to sort of church will fill up middle class people and get big and swollen up and fat and produce nothing but a lot of smoke. Fire of the spirit is a long way from them. And that's what James wanted to see happen. He wanted to see the fire of the Holy Ghost burning deeply within them because they didn't over identify with the people that came in the door. They told them the truth, even though they didn't want to hear it. They told them the truth, even though it scared them to death. That's the power of this James and his remarks against favoritism. Well, don't let outward circumstance you. Circumstances confuse you and frighten you too much. Look for what? Mercy. Can you say mercy? Mercy. <laughs> mercy is what will get them to come. And love the Lord Jesus more than anything in the world. The conviction that comes from mercy. And the wonderful desire to avoid all favoritism. Is a key to power in the church of James. There you have it today. Mercy. Well, I'll say goodbye. And I'll say it was a joy to be with you today. Coming to you from Virginia. I hope you are well, but my 30 minutes is up. What do I say? Mercy, mercy, goodbye, everybody, mercy. <laughs> Clamando no escuro, correndo e olhando para trás. E eu o vejo de coração. Hey!